Church, it's good to be with you this morning. Today we continue and conclude our series, Keep Your Eyes on Israel. And if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 to 30, or 36 to 38 thus far, and we've established a number of standout themes from these chapters. In chapter Chapters 36 and 37, we established that God has a plan for Israel. And that number one, God denounces and condemns any nation that tries to take possession of the land of Israel. Number two, God defends the land of Israel for his own name's sake. Number three, God declares himself to all the nations through the re-establishment of Israel. And number four, God will bring about the full restoration of the nation of Israel at the appointed time. It has already happened in part in that the nation has been physically restored to their land, but not yet spiritually. It is a part fulfillment of this prophecy. The bones are there, but it's a body awaiting breath, awaiting the Ruach, the Spirit of God. In Ezekiel chapter 38, we looked at how Ezekiel describes an eschatological conflict led by a leader of a region whose ancient name was Magog, which is known today as Russia. This leader forms a military alliance with other nations, and their target and goal is to destroy the nation and people of Israel because they want to thwart the plans of the God of Israel. It's a demonic anti-Semitic plan orchestrated by Satan himself to wipe out the apple of God's eye and to interfere with God's redemptive plan through the nation of Israel. As we discovered last week, most of these nations that are mentioned here in Ezekiel chapter 38, as I speak, are today in military and economic alliance, which has never happened before in history, and which really points to the fact that we are living in Bible times. We are seeing these prophecies unfold before our eyes, but as we concluded last week, what is happening in Israel right now with the war that has broken out is not yet the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 38. Because as per the prerequisites for this battle to happen, you would remember this slide from last week, some have been fulfilled and some are yet to be fulfilled. Now we don't know when exactly this battle will happen, we don't know the day or the hour, but we do know that these nations will come against Israel at some point in the future, and when you see all of those boxes ticked, you need to realize that something big is about to happen. And again, church, if we get to that scenario, if we get there, does that mean that you should panic? Does that mean that you should become fearful? Does that mean that you should run and hide in a bunker somewhere? No. Because between Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, on the prophetic timeline of events, I believe that the church is raptured. And as Jesus said in Luke chapter 21 verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption draws near. Amen. Amen. So this morning, as we continue on from where we left off, we are going to see the conclusion of this battle in Ezekiel chapter 39, how God defends the nation of Israel and why he defends them. And we're going to look at the significance of the nation of Israel in God's redemptive plan. And so let's start by raising an important question. Why is there such hatred around the world toward Israel and the Jewish people? 
Let me ask that question again because I want it to sink in. Why is there so much hatred around the world toward Israel and the Jewish people? When you just look at the response of people after Israel was attacked by Hamas three weeks ago, and how people are celebrating the fact that over 1,400 people, of which at least 80% are civilians, were brutally murdered. People around the world are actually celebrating the fact that babies were beheaded and that families were tortured in front of each other and burned alive. You have people and political parties around the world, even in our own country, protesting and standing with Palestine, but at no point are they condemning the attacks by Hamas. And whether or not you agree with Israel's rights to occupy the land and defend itself in the way it is now, you need to ask the question, why is there such hatred around the world towards Israel and the Jewish people? Well, let me answer that question with another question. What if God's plan to redeem the world required the existence of a nation and the survival of that nation? If that were true, and I believe it is, if you destroy that nation and its people, what will happen? You will destroy God's plan. Now, church, that hatred towards a certain nation didn't only start in the 21st century, right? In fact, I don't know if you know this, but it started right at the beginning of the Bible. There is and has been an invisible war, a spiritual conflict that has been waged since the very beginning of time as a mandate by Satan to destroy the seed that would eventually crush Satan's kingdom and rule the world. What do I mean by that? In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, right after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, this is what God says to Satan. He says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So he curses him physically and then in verse 15 he curses him spiritually and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now hold on to that thought of the woman's seed. God makes his promise to Satan in Genesis chapter 3, but the very next chapter, chapter 4, Satan, what does he do? He gets Cain to kill Abel. Abel is the righteous one who brings the appropriate sacrifice to the Lord, but Cain is jealous and kills his brother. God then raises up another child by the name of Seth, and the seed continues through Seth, and the promise continues through Seth. If you move on to Genesis chapter 6, the world becomes so corrupt, so wicked, the intents and thoughts of mankind are so evil that God destroys the earth in a worldwide flood. Everybody is destroyed except one family, eight people in total. But God preserves the eight to continue the promise of the seed that would come. In Genesis chapter 27, you have the story of Jacob and Esau. And how Jacob gets the birthright and Esau gets, ends up hating his brother. He doesn't really care about his birthright because he's willing to sell it for a bowl of stew. But then he gets so angry that it says that he determined in his heart that he was going to kill Jacob. Why? Because Jacob would obtain a birthright that would ultimately birth the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, which was a fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham. God says to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, your name is Jacob. 
Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called him Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. You continue that line throughout the Bible, and you come to Pharaoh, who has a certain group of people called the Jews living in his country. And he's so intimidated and afraid of what these people might become that he gives this demonic decree to the midwives of Egypt that if the Hebrew woman give birth to boys, that they should kill them. All of them. And why did he do that? Because he was a pawn of Satan trying to destroy the seed of the woman. But as hard as he tried, there was a three-month-old baby boy by the name of Moses who survived, who eventually led the Jewish people out of Egypt. If you move along in your Bible to 1 Samuel, we find where King Saul, for a decade, hunts David down to kill him. He knows that he's on his way out. He's lost his anointing, and the enemy tries to use him to destroy the one that God is going to set his promise upon for an eternal kingdom, and that would be David. But it doesn't stop there. When you get to the book of 2 Kings, there's a woman by the name of Athaliah, right? Who decides to kill the entire royal line of Judah. She decides to kill every single possible living heir to the throne of Judah from the lineage of King David, and she destroys all of them except one. A little boy by the name of Joash is hidden away with the midwife who nurses him. And if at that point all of them would have been destroyed, God's promise and God's plan would have ended. But Joash is saved and the seed continues. Move along another five books in your Bible to the book of Esther, where you come to the story of the Jews in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and where by God's sovereign plan, he allows Esther to become the queen of the palace of King Ahasuerus and which ultimately prevents a man by the name of Haman following through with his decree to wipe out every single living Jew in Persia. He wants to kill them all. But the seed continued, and that's just the Old Testament. Now you move over to the New Testament, and what happens? The seed of David is born. He's the seed of David genetically, but he's the root of David spiritually. The male child is born, and his name is Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem, and King Herod finds out about this, and and what does he decide to do? Kill every single male child two, two years and under. Why? Because it's a demonic plot to destroy the seed. You know, right throughout Jesus' life on this earth, especially during his ministry, There was attempt after attempt after attempt to destroy him. And then finally, one Friday, around the the year 32 or 33 AD, Jesus was crucified and died on that cross. And when Jesus died on that cross, Satan probably thought that he had won the victory and finally destroyed the seed. Because the limp body of Jesus that that had bled out during the day had been taken off, wrapped in linen, and placed in a tomb. Satan at that point probably just went, it's done, it's over. But you know what? He didn't realize what Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 18. 
He said about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Amen, somebody. And the seed continues, despite the invisible war and spiritual conflict that has been waged since the very beginning of time. Now, church, who is the woman's seed referred to in Genesis chapter 3 when God speaks to Satan? Who is the seed that will have his heel bruised by the serpent and will bruise the serpent's head? It is believed to be the seed of Eve starting from Abel with its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It is Christ. And get this, right from the fall of man, God sets in motion his plan for the redemption of man. The bruising of the heel is a picture of the crucifixion, and the bruising of the head of the serpent is the picture of the final judgment of Satan which we'll get to in our study of the book of Revelation. But, but this is important, church, because you might wonder, well, if Jesus already died on the cross and rose again and then ascended, why would there be this continual conflict to destroy the seed? I mean, isn't it all over and done with now? Well, no, because it's only over and done with when Jesus finally defeats Satan and his cronies. It's only over when he eventually bruises the head of the serpent. In other words, when he crushes Satan's kingdom and sets up his kingdom to rule the world from Jerusalem in Israel. Known as the thousand year millennial reign or the, the kingdom age. Unless you want to over-spiritualize or symbolize large portions of your Bible, you will see that there is still a final battle between the seed of the woman and Satan. And church, until then, the battle continues. Until then, the hatred continues. Until then, the, the anti-Semitic spirit of, of completely destroying anything Jewish continues. Which brings us back to the question I asked earlier, what if God's plan to redeem the world required the existence of a nation and the survival of that nation? Look at what it says in Jeremiah chapter 31. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, which it can't, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, which they can't, I will also cast of all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. I find it quite interesting that despite such clear compelling statements as that in Jeremiah chapter 31, there are people who say that God has cast off the seed of Israel, that God has given up on them and that the seed of Israel has ceased to be a nation before the Lord. And God basically says, go out and look if there is a sun in the, the sky during the day, and if there's a moon and stars in the sky at night, if those ordinances are still there, if they remain in place, he still has a place and a role for Israel as a nation. There are some Christians who mistakenly think that the truth of a spiritual Israel somehow replaces or erases God's plan for, the, for national or ethnic Israel. Because in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
If you look at that in the wrong context, you might can confuse. But church, what that means is that a man or a woman who has placed their faith in Jesus, get this, is more connected to Abraham spiritually than those who are connected to Abraham genetically. But none of this replaces or erases the idea of a national or ethnic Israel in God's redemptive plan. Now let me say this. You may or may not agree with what Israel is doing right now in the war or how they have governed the state of Israel since they've taken the occupation of the land in 1948. Truthfully, I don't think any of us are really in the position to know exactly what is happening on the ground or how this conflict plays out on a daily basis because we're not there ourselves. And until you are willing to get on the ground yourself and be a part of the humanitarian assistance or to go and preach the gospel in the heart of this crisis, I think it is best for us to withhold judgment. But even if you disagree based on what you're hearing or because you have a different view from an eschatological point of view, I want to caution you not to align yourself with the spirit of anti-Semitism that wants to see the destruction of the Jewish people. And I'm not saying that to anyone here today. But this spirit is rife all over the world at the moment, and even some Christians are starting to jump on the bandwagon. You may, you know, disagree with or even criticize the policies or the actions of the state of Israel. You may be struggling with this internal battle of what is right and wrong and where to stand. However, I say this without reservation. Calls to eliminate or to destroy the state of Israel and its people or to remove them from their land are unbiblical, fundamentally anti-Semitic and satanically inspired. And church, when we approach the final battle described here in Ezekiel chapter 39... This is the very spirit that comes against the nation of Israel and the spirit that God himself takes a very definitive stand against and destroys. You don't want to align yourself with the spirit. Rather, you want to align yourself with the spirit of God. Because the spirit that has, from the beginning of time, tried to destroy the seed of the woman is going to be defeated. And let's look now, we're not going to have a a lot of time, but let's look now in part at how that happens. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We'll select some of the key verses to bring this series to a close. In Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 1, God says to Ezekiel, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince, of Meshech and Tubal. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north, remember they're coming from the north, and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel." Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God, 
That is the day of which I have spoken. Verse 11, on that day I will give to Gog, listen to this, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valleys of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitudes will be buried. It will be called the valley of Hammon Gog. And verse 21, and I will set my glory among the nations. And all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. Let's pause there for a moment. Church, I'm not going to get into the detail of this final battle described here. We'll get to that part, that specific point in the book of Revelation, and we can look at this comparatively. However, I do want you to get the bigger picture of why we should keep our eyes on Israel as we bring this to a close. These nations that will come down from the north, a coalition of Russia, Iran, Turkey, and these other nations, they will come with a certain demonic intent. But their intentions will be met by the supernatural, omnipotent intentions of God. They will come to Israel, listen to this, they will come to Israel to bury Israel. They will be buried in Israel. Their goal is to get the land, but what is their goal will become their gravesite. And look, obviously, like I said, we're not getting into the detail of this battle. It is a significant battle, and a significant amount of people are going to be killed here. And you may ask, why does it have to end this way? Why so much destruction? And what is God's end game in all of this? Well, church, let me just say that God does have an end game in all of this. He has a goal through all of this. And I want you to see what it is. Look at Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 23. I'm going to give you two or three scriptures here. He says, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Go over to verse 7 of chapter 39. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Go down to verse 22 of the same chapter. The Holy, or excuse me, the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And then verse 29, the last verse of the chapter. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Do you know what this is, church? This is the fulfillment of what Ezekiel started prophesying back in chapter 36. Remember, God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. In chapter 37, he sees a vision of these bones coming together. And God says, I will make a new covenant with my people. And I will take out their old heart and, and give them a new heart. He says that he's going to breathe on them and put his spirit within them. And once this battle is settled by God, he finally declares, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of, of Israel. Total fulfillment. Physically restored, spiritually restored. Church, can you remember what it says in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 27? It's one of the passages I quoted in the series. Let me read it for you again. The Apostle Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, 
lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now remember, Jesus came and presented himself to the nation on Palm Sunday. The Sunday before he was crucified. And what happened? They rejected him. And in rejecting Jesus, God set aside Israel temporarily. Not permanently. Not ultimately. Because ultimately, Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, quick question. Does that mean that every Jew who has ever lived will automatically be saved? No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean all the Jews of all times will be saved, but it does mean that all the Jews at that time who survived the battle will be saved. The battle that they see God give them victory over, the events that happened during the tribulation period, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses who go out and evangelize, imagine 144,000 Apostle Paul's evangelizing. Think about that, right? And eventually the coming of Christ himself will cause them to believe. And you would think at that point there would be the greatest celebration of all time, right? But look at what it says in, in Zechariah chapter 12. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. They would have realized what they've, what they've missed all this time. And you see, church, in the future time of trouble, the tribulation period, the blindness that is over Israel nationally will be lifted. And those who are living during that time will come to believe in Jesus. And so this is what I want you to see. This is God's end game. This is his final goal. And this is all part of his redemptive plan for mankind. Those of us who have been grafted in will already be with the Lord. Right? But he sets his final time aside, known as Daniel's 70th week, to draw his chosen people back to him. Listen, including every other person who at that time gives their heart to the Lord. However difficult the circumstances may be. Incredible, right? When you, when you think about it, it just blows your mind. But you know what, church? That's the nature of our redemptive God. And as I've said before, thank the Lord that we are part of his redemptive plan. Amen? Now, I know you might be thinking, but pastor, isn't there a better way for God to get people's attention to know him than destroying the nations? Well, maybe there is, but here's how I want to answer that. When nations are in full-scale rebellion and opposition to God, when there's this demonic plot to destroy the seed of the woman, God has to display his might and power in a measure greater than the opposition that is against him. It's like this. If you are so determined to hit your head up against a wall, regardless of how strongly you feel that you should be doing this, the harder you hit your head against that wall, the more it's going to hurt you. In the same way, the more that you fight God, the more it's going to end up hurting you. 
When you have a nation or an individual that says, I don't want, I don't want God. I hate God. I'm against God. And I want to destroy God's people. They are setting themselves up for a very bad outcome. Because God will display himself in all of his power and all of his glory so that people might know him. And that everyone may know that he is the one and only true Lord and Savior. That's why he says in Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 23, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Amen and amen, right? Church, in conclusion, as we close out this series, <clears throat> remember that when we study prophetic scriptures like we have been over the past couple of weeks, it isn't supposed to make us scared, it is supposed to make us prepared. It isn't supposed to make us stressful and fearful, it is supposed to make us hopeful. Did you know that? It was C.S. Lewis that said, hope is one of the theological virtues. Did you know that hope is a virtue? He said, this means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Did you get that? One of the things a Christian is meant to do. You see, church, we are meant to look forward, and we are meant to look forward with hope because, listen, the God that has been in control of every single detail of mankind from the beginning of creation until now and will be until the end of the age is the same God that is in control of your life. Amen. Amen. Amen? He said that he will never leave you nor forsake you and that he will be with you till the end of the age. And you can rely on every promise that he has for your life now and forever. Amen? Amen. Church, the Holy One of Israel is coming again. And until then, He's calling you and I to align with His Spirit, to align with His purposes and plans. Why? Because He works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. If you believe that, would you just give Him a great shout of praise this morning? I want to ask the worship team to please come up. Can we maybe stand as we close in prayer? We're going to sing one last song. We're going to sing to the God of Israel. And after we sing that song, we're going to have a, a short time of communion together. Let's stand together. For those of, the, of you that can. For those of you who aren't too tired from last night. Let's uh, close the series out and just commit this time to the Lord. Lord, we are so thankful for the time we've spent today and over the past few weeks diving into your word and exploring the prophetic messages found in the book of Ezekiel. As we conclude our series on keeping your eyes on Israel, we are reminded of your divine plan for the nation of Israel and the significance it holds in your redemptive story. Lord, help us to understand the spiritual battle that has been waged since the beginning of time how it plays out even in our own lives, and how your ultimate victory over darkness is a source of hope and assurance for all who believe in you. May we remember that your plans are greater than ours, and that you work all things together for the good 
of those who love you. As we look to the future and the fulfillment of your promises, we look forward with hope. And Lord, in the meantime, we pray for wisdom and discernment and courage to live out our Christian lives and to spread the good news of the gospel to as many as you would lead us to. And Lord, we look forward to the day when all the nations will know that you are the one and only true Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we ask all these things and and all God's people said, Amen.